You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Massimo Piliucci, it's good to see you. Good to see you again, my friend. It's been a bit. It's been a while. Uh, I hope. I hope you don't feel jilted that I've done a few with some other people. <laughs> no, no, jealousy is not a stoic uh, value, as you know. <laughs> um, um, uh, welcome to the Sophia audience. Uh, I'm really happy to be back with uh, my friend and colleague, co- partner in crime, Massimo Piliucci, who is the. You want to remind everybody who you are? The KD Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. And of course, I am a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. Um, Massimo, today we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about Stoicism again, but not just Stoicism, um, but eudaimonia flourishing more generally. And um, you and I did something which I really thought came out really quite well, and that is we we published dueling essays on my magazine, The Electric Agora. And so I wrote, I wrote a paper about, an essay about human flourishing and why I think it's not self-sufficient and pushed sort of an Aristotelian line. And then I asked you to write a counter essay um, saying why you thought virtue, why you thought flourishing was self-sufficient uh, along Stoic lines. And so I thought it'd be a good thing to talk about your book is still new. Your How to Be a Stoic book is still new, and we'll again link to the Amazon page to it. And so it seems to me like it's, it's a good thing to talk about as your book is being discussed. Um, yeah. uh, on the- uh, you know, as you were saying, I, I think this also goes beyond sort of stoicism in particular. It, it's, uh, it's really about the conception of a good life. You know, yeah, what, what we that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And as you know, it's not just a term that was used um, uh, and widespread in ancient Greece, in particular during the Hellenistic period, uh, it's actually used today by uh, modern psychologists to indicate the kind of life that is worth living. So it's, it's actually a current debate. I mean, we're going to talk about it mostly in terms of Aristotle and, and the Stoics, but, but this is really uh, much more widely applicable than just those two philosophies. Yeah, yeah. So I thought maybe a way to we'll start it. And, you know, I'm almost wondering whether part of the issue between us is a basic difference over what eudaimonism is, what eudaimonia is. Um, because it seems to me that that's part of what differentiates the Stoics from the Aristotelians, is, not, is that they have a basically a very different conception of what the thing is they're talking about. So maybe the views aren't incompatible so much in, the, in a way that you might think, um, and more just sort of different perspectives on what we mean by a good life. Maybe you could start with how you understand eudaimonia and why, in the sense you understand it, it is self-sufficient. Right. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, in fact, uh, this discussion that we are about to have and that we had in print is pretty much the same discussion that the Aristotelians and the Stoics had themselves, uh, you know, like 2,000 years ago. And, um, uh, and it, I think you're right. It mostly hinges on different conceptions of eudaimonia. And I think, actually, again, the issue is even broader uh, an argument can be made that most of the ancient Greek-Roman philosophies uh, differentiated itself, themselves, uh, one from the other, uh, based on their conception of eudaimonia. Uh, so, for instance, the Aristotelians uh, meant something close to what we think today as flourishing. A flourishing life is a life where you are allowed to pursue your projects, you, you find meaning in the things you do, uh, you have uh, sort of a, a nice existence in terms of support from friends and family, 
uh, you have a certain amount of you know material goods. You don't have to be rich uh, or, or, or you know wealthy for it, but but you have you know you're reasonably healthy, you're reasonably educated, that sort of stuff. That is what brings about a flourishing life. Uh, if you, and and I don't think there is an issue there. I mean, I, I would agree both uh, sort of in terms of philosophical principles, but, but more importantly, empirically speaking, that is a flourishing life for a human being. There's no question about it. Um, however, take, for instance, the Epicureans. Uh, they thought that a eudaimonic life is a life of tranquility. It's a life where you basically enjoy small pleasures and mostly avoid pain. Uh, other than that, you know, anything else, as far as they were concerned, was you know, uh, either... either Unnecessary or, in fact, even got in the way um, of a flourish, uh, sorry, a eudaimonic life. Uh, for instance, uh, famously, the, the Epicureans cancelled to withdraw from social and political activity uh, because they typically cause pain. And, you know, living in the times that we live in the United States right now, one can uh, readily agree that, yes, indeed, political involvement does bring pain, uh, not of physical nature necessarily, but it's certainly of an emotional one. Uh, the Stoics and the Cynics thought of, uh, which were sort of close-related you know, philosophies, uh, they thought of eudaimonia in yet a third way. Uh, eudaimonia for them was a life worth living. Uh, now, of course, a flourishing life is worth living. That's, that goes uh, sort of without, without question, I, I think. Um, but their, their definition or their conception of a life worth living was actually more expansive. That is, if you are, in fact, you know, lucky enough to be reasonably educated and wealthy and, and, you know, have friends and family. Great. That's good for you. That's definitely a life worth living. But mostly a life worth living is uh, defined by the Stoics and especially by the Cynics in terms of how you act morally in that life. So you could have a pretty awful existence in terms of material circumstances uh, and still, that life may be worth living if you act accordingly, if you do the best you can under those circumstances, right? And that's, of course, a major distinction with the Aristotelians. Aristotle would say, well, you know, if you are out of luck, if you don't have enough externals, uh, you know, virtue by itself isn't going to do it. Uh, now, I would we need also to be clear about one thing. These were all eudaimonic philosophies, and all of them, did imply or, or assume that virtue is fundamental. I mean, even for the Aristotelians, you do have to live your life with virtue. It's just that virtue is not sufficient for flourishing. You mean moral virtue? Yeah, I think... I, think that, I don't think that's true of Aristotle. Aristotle says the highest form of life is the life of contemplation, and it is by definition a non-moral life, because it's not a life of activity in the polis. I mean, that's, that's the whole of Book 10, right? I'm... Um, so he elevates the intellectual life above the moral life, but he thinks it's a life that only a very few people can attain, um, and only in certain societies in which there, you know, there is sufficient uh, material wealth and, and civilization to sustain a class of non-productive, non-acting. But I was always under the impression that maybe this is a matter of disagreement, but I was under the impression that the, 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 the contemplative life for Aristotle is not a moral life and that it is the highest life as, he's, as far as he's concerned. Uh, so I think you're right on the, I mean, you're certainly right about uh, the contemplative life being the, the highest form of human existence for Aristotle, and he gets that from the fact that the proper function of a human being is to reason uh, well, and, you know, so he has, he has a teleonomic uh, 
you know, view of humanity. We have a proper function, just like everything else, pretty much in the world. And if the proper function of humanity, you know, a human being is to think, then you would think that obviously it follows that a life of, of thought and contemplation is the highest possible existence. But, uh, you know, I can't quote you right now the passages. I would like to go back and look. But I'm pretty sure that Aristotle ever assumed that, yes, but you do need to do that morally. That is, if you're a bastard, if you, if you take advantage of other people, if you kill people and so on and so forth, the fact that you spend most of your life contemplating doesn't make it a eudaimonic existence uh, because you are not doing that virtuously. Um, and the same thing is, again, true of the Epicureans. I mean, the Epicureans often are, are portrayed as, you know, the sex of drug and, drugs and rock and roll of ancient philosophy, which they were not. Um, but when, even when they talk, when they say that the highest... Uh, form of of uh, human existence is a life that is free of pain. They still very clearly say within a moral framework. If you are not, if you achieve a life of not uh, of lack of pain by taking advantage of other people, by you know uh, mistreating others, by uh, uh, doing awful things, then that's not, that's not a good life. Um, you know? yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, I. I... I did study. I did study Aristotle in some depth in college. Um, um, I took you know sort of upper level courses in Greek philosophy, and at least you know I think that there may actually be dispute over the interpretation of book. I mean, I know there's dispute over the interpretation of book ten. I think there's even some who think who wonder whether it was a later edition um, by by not by Aristotle. But at least the way I understood it. It's not so much that the intellect, the contemplative life is an immoral life, but it's an amoral life in the sense that it's not a life of activity in the polis. And at least at one of the things that he says in this, I can, I can quote almost verbatim. He said, um, it's essentially the life of a God. And it yeah. would it not be, it, would it not be absurd for a God, for example, to act on principles of justice as if gods make contracts and give loans. And in other words, he's got this whole thing where he says, look, in order to 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 be to be the kind of being that that has moral virtues, one has to be engaged in activity in a social context, and the life of contemplation is not a life of activity. It's really the life of a god because it's the pure exercise of the divine element of of, of human nature, right? Um, um, and and so it's not so much that it's an immoral life, but it's that it's it's not a moral life. It's a non-moral life. It's a life of pure intellectual, uh, purely pure intellection. Is the way yeah. You know, again, as you said, there is disagreement here, and I certainly know Aristotle uh, scholar, uh, but, but I do remember Aristotle saying something on the lines of, uh, you know, the only way to determine if somebody has actually lived a eudaimonic life is to wait until they're dead. That's and, true, yes. And, and part of the reason for that is because some that, that, that person uh, may have had a pretty good eudaimonic life up until the end, and then something catastrophic happens, uh, which is going to ruin right. the, Right. Uh, right. Uh, aspect, right? right, and I, if I remember correctly, however, that some some of that of that catastrophes may be externals. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, this is this is sort of a, you you lose everything you have, or you know, right. you lost your plans or whatever it is. But some of it, it can be internally generated. That is, if you do yourself something that um, again right. is is non moral, is unvirtuous, and so on and so forth, right. then you actually ruin your eudaimonic experience, right? Right, right, right. Uh, so. Yeah, you know, and it may just be that there's just too much disconnect between the account that's given in 1 through 9 and the account that's given in 10 to come up with a coherent account of them all. And so, I don't, you know, we don't want to go spend the whole time in Aristotle interpretation. Um, but, 
But uh, and, and I don't think it actually affects this conversation because clearly this conversation is about a dispute between Aristotle and, let's say, the Stoics or others with respect to the life of flourishing as presented in books one through nine, right? Um, um, and so the life of, you know, uh, of virtue uh, as lived normally uh, in the polis. And so we'll stick to that. I just thought I'd mention it. It's, it is, it's actually an interesting uh, dimension because there's so much in Aristotle where it looks like towards the later part of his career, he actually becomes more platonic. Yeah. In metaphysics and the metaphysics also, he seems to go back from his position in the categories um, that substances are individuals to the idea that substances are forms and metaphysics zeta. And so one way you could look at Aristotle is he started off very much in rebellion against his teacher. And then as he got older, became more like his teacher, just like we all turn into our parents, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, in fact, it's funny you mentioned this because I just read recently a quote from, I don't remember who it was from, but I can probably uh, find it, uh, who said, you know, Aristotle gave us the, the, um, the key to the good living. The problem is he buried it in a bunch of too many books. So let me just ask you, but going back to what you just said about, I like the way you described the eudaimonia as per Aristotle, as per the Epicureans. Um, and, and again, I know you're not a Greek scholar, but you've now read so much of this stuff that maybe you've come upon this. Is there an ambiguity in the interpretation of the Greek word eudaimonia that allows for these different interpretations? Yeah, I, I think I think there is. I mean, as you know, uh, that word is essentially untranslatable in English to begin with. Right. Right. Uh, until right. Not long ago, uh, people translated it with happiness, and we both right. that's just a bad translation. It's right, right. What happiness is, if by happiness you mean an affective state of, you know, a state of elation or something like that. Now, if by happiness you mean, you know, a, a situation in which uh, you are content and, and satisfied with the kind of life you have, then that begins to approach uh, some meanings, at least, or some versions of eudaimonia. So, yeah, there is ambiguity. But and- isn't that still a subjective state? Um. Being, well, satisfied, being satisfied with the life you have, isn't that still a subject? Isn't that still, in a sense, a mental state rather than a state of being? Yes, except that, of course, um, as I think you pointed out yourself in, in the past, uh, most of the Greek philosophers did have a background theory of human nature. And so, yes, that, that you're correct. The state of uh, being satisfied with your life um, is, in fact, a subjective state. But both the Stoics and the Aristotelians and the Epicureans will say, and the cynics certainly would say, yeah, but somebody can be mistaken about, about that state. Somebody could be mistakenly satisfied about their life because they don't know better. Because so it's don't. not satisfied as Mill would mean it. Correct. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's tricky. That's- I think a good way to think about it is rightly satisfied. <laughs> right? Which gives it a dimension of objectivity, right? Which, 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 yeah, which means it's not just true if sincerely thought, right? Um, um, it has to match some actual condition uh, that, that you're in. Um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's where the and that's that's one way, one dimension to see how the Greek uh, the Greek schools differ from each other. So, for instance, uh, when you said a minute ago, you know, for Aristotle, the, the, the higher possible kind of existence, the best kind of existence, is the contemplative one. Uh, it derives that from a particular uh, conception of human nature, um, and the Stoics' reply would be. 
the Epicureans would also disagree, but the Stoics reply in particular uh, would be, yeah, but you have actually misunderstood human nature. Human nature, uh, human, the human animal is not just an animal capable of reason, you know, a rational animal. It's also a political animal. It's also a social animal. Of course, Aristotle did say that in, in another... Books one book. through nine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but so the Stoics would say, look, the, the, there are two fundamental aspects to being human. One is the fact that we're capable of uh, reason, we're capable of Russia. That does set us apart from every other animal. Uh, but also the fact that we're highly social. That is, that we, we cannot flourish, we cannot actually live well unless we'll, we live in a society. And if that's the case, then that, that's where they are going to derive this idea that the contemplative life by itself isn't going to do it. You also have to act virtuously toward others because you depend on others and so on and so forth, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, so, so, so let me ask you... The, human nature. So what you said, yeah, and I think the more that we're talking, the more I'm thinking that ultimately the debate between the Stoics and the Aristotelians is over human nature. Um, 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 uh, because at first I thought it's over what flourishing means. But I think that the extent to which it is, it's because they disagree with what what what, what a human being fundamentally is. Um, so would you? So it sounded to me like you said earlier that Aristotle's conception of eudaimonia is a conception of flourishing plaw proper, but that the Stoic one really isn't. Uh, is is that is that is that what you is that is that what I did I understand rightly? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, what I, what could I'm you could you to, be more specific? Be more yeah. What I'm trying to, to draw is a distinction. Basically, I'm trying to give Aristotle his, his, his due because <laughs> as, as is, I think, the right thing to do, which is um, if by flourishing we mean what I said earlier, that is, you know, the ability to pursue your projects and to be satisfied with, you know, your accomplishments and so on and so forth, then clearly the Stoics are not talking about flourishing because... Uh, for a because those are preferred indifference for the Stoics, right? Correct. A lot of those things. Exactly. So because because uh, being able to accomplish your, your goal for a Stoic is a preferred indifference. And, of course, as, as we've talked in the past, that phrase is, is fraught with uh, problems because it sounds like an oxymoron. Um, but what once one understands it properly, it actually makes sense. A preferred indifference. So, so let's say, you know, uh, a life of uh, professional accomplishment. Side, which is something that is important to both you and, 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 and I, right? Um, you know, one of the reasons I think my life is, in fact, a life of flourishing in the Aristotelian sense uh, is because I have a good career, I have, you know, uh, somewhat good family relations, you know, a certain number of friends and so on and so forth. But, but let's stick to the career. So my career is an important part of my life. It, it's part of what makes my life meaningful and, and what makes me feel like I am, in fact, flourishing. I've been lucky enough to get the job uh, that I wanted, and, and I've been reasonably successful at it, and so on and so forth. Now, for Aristotle, that, that's, that's a major component of the eudaimonia. And in fact, if something should happen to my career that all of a sudden takes a nosedive, <laughs> let's say, given recent um, uh, uh, happenings, in, especially in, in, in politics and, uh, and, and in the entertainment industry, let's say that all of a sudden there is a sexual harassment scandal and I lose my job, right? Well, that for Aristotle. Oh, Massimo, I just knew there was something lurking underneath that. <laughs> right. So for Aristotle, that my, my eudaimonia will take a nose down. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but of course, that could happen for all sorts of other reasons. It could happen because of an illness and so on and so forth. 
For the Stoics, however, uh, my reputation uh, uh, or even my health is, is only a preferred indifferent, meaning that other things being equal, yeah, I like to have a good reputation with other people and other things being equal, I like to be a healthy person rather than not. Uh, but what really matters is what I do, what, what, what I am as a cat in my judgments. So if, in fact, I have not done anything wrong, if, in fact, I have done my best uh, in order to, you know, deal with other people and, you know, sort of act virtuously, what other people think are uh, 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 it really not affecting their version of eudaimonia, their view of eudaimonia. Uh, my life is still worth living, despite the fact that a lot of other people might think that that's actually not the case. So that's why you have a lot of examples in Stoic uh, lore, both ancient and modern, of people whose lives can hardly be considered flourishing. Right, like slaves and, and, and right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Or the, the prisoners. prisoners uh... like or to take modern examples, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was not a Stoic, uh, but interestingly, I found out recently by reading Martha Nussbaum, that um, actually one of the things that, that helped him make the transition between uh, from, from a very angry, justifiably angry person uh, in prison to uh, somebody who thought that actually cooperation and reaching out was the way to go, uh, one of the things that made him, you know, that helped him change was reading the meditations by Marcus Aurelius, uh, so a stoic, a stoic uh, book. And um, now, very few people would say that most of, of Mandela's life was a life of flourishing. I mean, he spent 28 years in prison. That's, that's hardly a life of flourishing, right? Even though in the end it actually worked out okay for him. Um, but, but still, that's, that's a pretty heavy um, uh, you know, mark against your eudaimonia in the Aristotelian sense. But I think we all agree that Nelson Mandela's life was worth living. And the reason it was worth living is precisely because he overcame uh, his situation, he made himself into a better person, and he actually affected change uh, that was the result of his character, his, the result of his, of his strength, inner strength, and so on and so forth. So that, for a stoic, is a life worth living. Even when he fails, uh, the other example is uh, Cato the Younger. That's, the, that, that's one of the ancient examples. Right? So Cato was a stoic philosopher and senator, and uh, uh, he was an arch enemy of Julius Caesar. And, you know, he fought uh, tooth and nail against Caesar because he thought that Caesar was a, was a tyrant that was going to destroy the Roman Republic, which, in fact, well, he was. <laughs> he was, and it did happen, right? Um, now, Cato fought um, both politically initially, and then he took up arms uh, against Julius Caesar. But eventually he lost. Uh, you know, he committed suicide in order not to uh, make himself a pawn in, in Caesar's game. So by all standards uh, of sort of flourishing, that life was a failure. It's like uh, you, you failed at the major things you thought were important in your life. It's just like this is not good. Um, but he's still considered 2,000 years later, uh, you know, a role model of, of the way you want to act under circumstances that are ultimately outside of your control. Although, of course, I mean, you know, this is where the Aristotelian gets started. I mean, look, the Aristotelian in one sense has a very nice – uh, has a very nice um, um, uh, escape hatch for the, you know, if you can show that down the road, even after Cato was dead, his actions influenced others that led to better government later, you could say that his life really was, was flir- involved flourishing after all, right? I mean, and I don't think that that's necessarily cheating, right? Um, um, 
think it's cheating, but but uh, but I do object to that uh, sort of escape hatch on the grounds that, of course, that raises the question of well, how far long down the road are we going to look? And uh, if you ta- if you take Cato's uh, right. example, well, you know, after Caesar there was the empire, so the republic was done. well. In the case of Cato, it wouldn't work, but I'm saying right. it could. I mean, you could see, you could have imagined, or let's say, you know, I don't know, one of the later emperors was very influenced by Cato, and thus, the, you know, that led to a better period. But, but no, I understand the point you're making very well, and, um, and it's, I guess, the point that, that I want to I wanna really push on. So, um, look, it seems to me that one of the differences that has to be between a eudaimonist view and, let's say, a hedonic view like utilitarianism, right? Like, like, and let's take Mills, which is more sophisticated than Bentham's, right? Is that... Whatever eudaimonia is, it has to involve some kind of actual success rather than the, just the feeling, the subjective feeling of success, right? right. Um, otherwise, it's indistinguishable from a, modo- a modern uh, hedonism, it seems to me. Yeah. Now, it seems to me like what you're saying is that for the Stoics, for the Aristotelian, success is success in one's endeavors in the actual world, Right. But the Stoic, it's really a matter of success in the development and exercise of your character. Would you say that that's a fair way of distinguishing? I think that's exactly right. In fact, I don't think it's by chance that uh, it was the um, hedonistic uh, uh, sort of um, philosophy, particularly Epicureanism, that influenced Mill. uh, And it was the Stoics who influenced Kant. Right, so Kant, obviously, uh, Mill was not an Epicurean, and Kant was not a Stoic. No, but you're they absolutely were, right. Yeah, but they were influenced respectfully, and I don't think that's by chance. Um, that's because uh, Mill and as well as the Epicureans were actually focused mostly on the outcome of certain uh, of, of your actions and you know what ha- what actually happens in your life. While on the other hand, both Kant and the Stoics were were uh, focused on the effort. Right. So what matters is the effort, of course. Um, one, you know, sort of a cynical way, cynical with a little C, not, not the philosophy, but a cynical way to sort of criticize, I think, the Stoic and even the Kantian position is to say, well, you just want to feel good about the fact that you tried even even though you failed. No, it's clearly not that. that that's not what it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, don't, I think that we should make clear that that is not the case. I mean, you know, the Stoics were not about feeling and neither was Kant for that matter. Um, uh, it, was, it was about, okay, did you do everything that was possibly under your, in your power to do in order to accomplish what you want to accomplish. If the answer is yes, then there is no point in regretting or feeling sad or feeling you know, dejected or whatever it is. Yeah, you might not like the outcome, but if you really did truly do everything that was in your power uh, to do in order to achieve it, then you know, what else is there to say? What else is there to do? It's basically taking seriously what the Stoics uh, uh, refer to as the uh, dichotomy of control, the fact that your your judgments and your intentions are under your control, but the outcomes of your actions are not necessarily under your control. You can influence them, but, but they're not under your control. They, they also depend on a number of external factors that are uh, completely outside of your control. Um, no, I think that the connection with Kant is really fascinating, and I actually would love to I'd love, I don't know how much work has been done on that in the history of philosophy. But it would be really interesting. To, I mean, I don't know how far you've pursued this, but how much do we know about how influenced Kant was by Stoicism? Are you we know, just guessing from the philosophy? 
Yeah, I would I would have to look at more more. In fact, it's it is one of my projects, and that's a, actually one of the things that it's also one of the projects that I'm pursuing is uh, is Mill's criticism of the Stoics. Uh, not directly. He, he only mentions them, I think, once or twice in passing. But he had where? where? So I'll I'll get back to you because I don't think I've I don't think I'm familiar with that. That's I, I didn't know that. I think it's it's on in on liberty, but I could be wrong. So, so there's a passage there where. Um, uh, Mill criticizes the idea of living according to nature, of you know, sort of uh, using nature as a guidance uh, for living, and of course that is one of the one of the Stoic precepts. <clears throat> Although I actually think that Mill, like many others, misunderstands what the Stoics meant by that. Um, but that's a whole different conversation. I think a lot of the moderns did. Yes, that's right. Yeah. A lot of yeah. did, including Hume. Hume was much more sympathetic to the Stoics actually. Uh, and Mill, but he, he also misunderstands a couple of fundamental things about about the Stoics. Possibly uh, also because there were not very good translations of the Stoic text at, uh, available at the time. I and mean, we're talking, you know, the first modern translation of Epictetus, for instance, is by Poliziano, who was in the, in the Medici's uh, court in Florence during the Renaissance, and that was in Italian, not not in English. Although Mill did read Greek, yes. I know Mill. I know Mill read Greek. I don't know if Hume read Greek, but I know that Mill read Greek. Yeah, um, that's a- yeah. But anyway, go on, go on. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Wait, back to Kant. Um, back to Kant. Yeah, I, I need to look into it more more seriously. Uh, usually, the connection between Stoics and Stoics and Kant comes out in the ter- in terms of the concept of duty. Uh, and you know, the Stoics were big on, on duty, uh, just like a lot, although not all of, of the Hellenistic uh, schools. And and of course, duty plays a major role. In- and that what matters is what you will, not what happens, right? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, this is actually a perfect point for me to sort of ask the questions that I think are going to bring out the most interesting elements of this. So, if you're, you 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 thought it was okay, my characterization that for that that all forms of eudaimonism have to involve some conception of actual success rather than simply the feeling of success. Um. And that the difference between the Aristotelian is that for the Aristotelian, eudaimonia indicates success in one's actual activities in the world. And right. for the Stoic, it's success in the development and exercise of character. Correct. Okay. Um, and so that then gets me to the question of human nature. Okay. What a human being is. Yeah. And... Um, I'm wondering whether the sto- and in, in many ways this may be an anticipation, certainly of Christian ideas and certain modern ideas. But I'm wondering if the Stoic has rather a more internal conception of what a human being is. In other words, for the Stoic, the human being is fundamentally a personality or a character, as right. opposed to an embodied uh, living being in the polis. Now, if that's not the case. How can they? How can it not be the case? I guess to hold on to that thought because yeah. somebody is persistently ringing in my door. Okay, so go ahead. We'll save this and then resume it, or do you want to just hang out? Hang I'm out. gonna. I'm gonna. I can pause it. Okay, pause. Okay, that's what I'm gonna do. Yeah, I'll be back in a second. Sorry, we had to pause. Um, Massimo uh, had pizza delivered. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> um, I'd asked you, Massimo. Um, whether what this shows is that for the Stoic, what a human being fundamentally is, is a personality or a character that he has not, I don't want to call it Cartesian, but a very internal conception of what a human being is. 
Whereas Aristotle thinks that a human being is an embodied creature living in a social environment. Now, if that's not the case, how can it not be the case? How does the Stoic match this notion that success is simply the development and exercise of character, but no, what I fundamentally am is a living being embodied in a polis, right? Uh, yeah. No, that's an excellent question. And, and uh, the answer, I'm afraid, is going to be yes and no. So, <laughs> so definitely, definitely the, the Stoics were not Cartesian. They, they did not think of a Cartesian theater. They were not dualists. In fact, they were very much materialists. Uh, very well, not substance dualism, but the idea that you're defined by your interior consciousness yeah. rather than by your embodied... Yeah. Yeah. So, in that sense, that is correct. The, the the Stoics thought that what really defines you, who you really are, is your judgments, uh, and therefore, and therefore your character, because your your judgments uh, come out of your of your character. But um, that may sound, as you just put in a minute ago, as okay. Well, but that's not really embodied, is it? It's just like a, almost floating out there. Um, and, you know, where do you get your character from and that sort of stuff. But they had an interesting argument, which is best uh, explained, I think, in uh, book three of Cicero's The Finibus, uh, where he engages in this fictional dialogue with Cato the Younger, the same guy that we mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, and Cato explains the basics of, uh, of Stoic philosophy. And uh, the way the Stoics uh, looked at it um, is what is called the Cradle Argument, the cradle argument is essentially, in modern terms, a developmental, it's a cognitive developmental theory. Uh, it is an account of how it is that we become adult, uh, responsible human beings. And the Stoics say, okay, we start out as selfish little bastards, uh, where it's all about me, me, me when we are, when you're, we're an infant. And we have no conception really of anybody else or anything else. Then pretty soon, however, uh, just, just by the nature of the human individual, we begin to realize that there are other people out there and that we depend on those people. Uh, so those will be, of course, our caretakers in, immediately. And we develop uh, natural feelings of concern and affection. Uh, and we begin to take other people's uh, uh, sort of needs in mind and you know, into account when we, when we do our things, when we, when we, when we act in the world. And then the process, the, the more you progress, the more you get into sort of the age of reason, so the, the, that would be seven or eight years old uh, from a psychological developmental perspective. From that point on, you start thinking more and more, and you build uh, on top of your sort of uh, your innate character, on top of your innate reactions, your natural reactions, you start building uh, by reflection and by practice. By by and in this sense, actually, Aristotle would actually agree that character is built by practice. By yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and eventually, you get to a point where you become essentially uh, an adult, responsible individual. And at that point, you are responsible for what? According to the Stoics, you're responsible mostly for making sure that your judgment gets better and better. That, that, that the major that the major function of a human being basically is arriving arriving at better and better judgments about what to do, what is important, and why is it important. Now, what I find fascinating in this account, in the credo account, is that it actually uh, goes very well both with modern uh, developmental psychology, but even with evolutionary biology. Uh, you remember our, our mutual friend, uh, Sky Cleary, Mm -hmm. um, and Sky and I are just about, in fact, I was working on this uh, right before you told, 
to write a, an essay on, on human nature and the implications of it for philosophy, for philosophy of life. Um, because it's interesting to me that there is a number of modern philosophers that seem to deny that there is such a thing as human nature. And I would say that's probably the dominant view. Yeah, I think at least is, in analytic in analytic philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's the dominant view, and, and I think it's strange because uh, not only that sort of essentially denies most of the history of Western philosophy, um, but also interestingly, they seem to think that this is a result of modern biology, that you know, the modern worship biology tells It's because of a ham-fisted taking on board of science, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I also think, you know, and I'm an evolutionary biologist, so I also think that actually there's a fundamental misunderstanding there about what biology tells you about human nature. Sure, if by human nature you mean, and here probably Aristotle uh, is the example that comes to mind more, more obviously, uh, if by human nature you mean a fundamental essence, an unchangeable essence, something then that there's is, not one. <laughs> then there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that, obviously. We, we are uh, the product of a process of evolution. We are related to other animals, and we share a lot of our characteristics with a lot of other animals. That said, uh, any evolutionary biologist would be, I think, a, a, a stunned by the idea that there isn't such a thing as a pretty tight cluster of characteristics that clearly, statistically speaking, separates human, the human lineage from anything else. Right. We're not even, I mean, and, you know, you often hear this uh, statistic about, uh, oh, we only differ, our genome only differs by, you know, what is it, 2% or something like that from that of chimpanzees. Typically, uh, that phrase is sort of brought up in a context of, so we're not that different, actually. We, a, lot of us a lot can happen in 2%, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 2% is a hell of a lot of DNA, and there is, yeah. that means hundreds of thousands of changes, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, you know, so I do think that there is such a thing as human nature, uh, if you intend, if you mean this as a um, cluster, of, you know, a statistical cluster of right. characteristics, right. that, of course, evolves through time. Right. It's, it's fixed. Uh, you know, it, it, it came from somewhere and maybe going somewhere else. We don't, we don't know. Um, but all that the Stoics need in order for their argument to get, to get off the ground is that there are sufficiently tight yeah, yeah. groups of characteristics that identify us, and they're very different from yeah. anything that identifies a chimpanzee or a gorilla or, a, or an elephant or, or a termite or anything else. And I think that's trivially true at this point. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah we actually we did a whole dialogue on, on teleology and nature and whether the modern conception of nature is sufficiently thick to support a eudaimonist philosophy, and you, you, you argued very strongly that it is, um, 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 even without essences. Um, and, and this is where, where your disagreement with Anscombe fundamentally lies, um, right. um, is that you don't think you need essences to get enough of the notion of purpose that you can then base a eudaimonism on it. Um, but I'm interested in this, this I mean, it's, it, it, it's not like you somewhat accept the idea that for the Stoics, um, what it is to be a human being is defined fundamentally internally, not implying any substance dualism, but is determined by one's character and personality in a sense. Um, I don't want to call it mentalistic, but it's something along those lines. It's, it's not, it doesn't seem as anthropological as Aristotle's, right? It's uh, in a sense, you're right, but, but I think we need to be careful there not, not to push to push it too far, because um, the Stoics did think that character uh, uh, so develops over time 
in part, in great part, because of your interactions with other people. I mean, you know, we are, so uh, let's step, step back for a second here. <clears throat> Stoic physics, which is really uh, uh, natural science and metaphysics, tells you that everything is connected by cause and effect. And that is particularly so for local causes and effects. And local causes and effects on your character mean, uh, in, in, to a great degree, the interactions you have with other people. Uh, the Stoics emphasize that the way you learn to be a better person is not just, just by uh, you know, sitting in a room and thinking about what it means to be a better person. Is you got to get out there and talk to people and pick uh, you know, good friends, uh, pick good role models. Um, you know, Seneca says famously that the only way to uh, measure just how crooked uh, a stick you are is by picking as a reference a, a stick that is actually straighter than yours. So there is a, an embedded concept of the fact that this is actually a communal activity. Yes, ultimately, uh, the, the emphasis as far as you are concerned is on your own character, your own what, what they call prohiresis, you know, the, the faculty of judgment. But that faculty of judgment develops naturally in part because of the kind of biological being that we are and in part because of the kind of social being that we are. Uh, without a social social interactions, you don't get a, a functional human being, and that actually is again is pretty well uh, demonstrated by modern science. I mean, we do know of, of cases in which human beings uh, uh, sort of grew up in situations that were clearly uh, abnormal from a social perspective, and you don't get a good result. You don't get a good character. You don't get good judgment. I just you know. So now I'm starting to wonder whether there's a bit of a tension inside stoicism because if it's the if it's the case that the focus, the stoic focus on character and personality, its development and their exercise is not a purely internal matter, but is, is essentially dependent upon one's relationships and one's activity within the social framework. Yeah. And I don't see how success in those relationships and activities can be a preferred and different. Now it seems to me they're essential. In other words, successful, successfully navigating the social world, which you can fail at, right, sure. is going to matter in terms of your capacity to exercise, to develop and exercise your character. So then how can these be preferred? How can success in these external endeavors now be a preferred and different? Oh, that's an excellent question. I think that the way they, they put it is it's a little bit different. So, um, yes, you've learned from interacting with other people, first of all. The Stoics I would agree with Aristotle and I think with a lot of other humanistic uh, uh, philosophies that um, you do need certain things to be in place in order to be a functional human being. I mean, give, give me, I can give you the obvious uh, the, the trivial example. Um, if I suffer from a severe mental condition, right, or a defect at birth or something like that, well, there is no eudaimonia to talk about. There is no development of character. Even for the Stoics. Even for the Stoics, yes. So, and, you know, Stoicism is not about magic. It's not that like you can somehow transcend, uh, you know, you're being a biological being. So certain minimum characteristics have to be in place, I think, for everybody in the eudaimonistic tradition in order to, because otherwise you don't have agency, right? If you don't, if you don't, don't develop a certain degree of agency, you cannot make your choices. And if you, can't make, if you cannot make your choices, then not only Stoicism, but also Cynicism and Aristotelianism and, and in the beginning, they all go out the window. It's about your choices. It's about uh, how you uh, react to what the world uh, throws at you. The difference, I think, is that 
in what the different philosophies require or emphasize beyond that bare minimum, okay? Beyond the fact that you want to be sort of a uh, more or less normally functional human being. Um, what the Stoics require there is, in fact, interactions with, human, with other human beings, but they consider that natural. That's, that's part of, you know, that's, it's part of your normal environment. Um, remember, however, that it is you, through a process of sort of feedback and interaction throughout your life, who you pick your role models, you pick your friends. So um, the idea there is that the, your agency improves over time up until to the point in which when you are an adult, uh, uh, fully functional human being, at that point you're actually independent of externals. Seneca says this interesting thing at one point in one of the letters to Lucilius. He says, the wise person prefers to have friends, but it doesn't need them. Now, the key there is the wise person. In order to become wise... He's already wise, which means he had to have friends at one point. Correct. So that they become dispensable later. <laughs> right? Right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, go on, go on. So in a sense, I, you know, and this was actually a criticism that the Aristotelians themselves early on did put to the Stoic uh, school. They say, oh, but you guys are just you know, saying the same things with different words. Uh, you, you, you also agree that there had to be some externals. Um, I think mean, that's a fair criticism. I, I do think, however, that there's still a major difference between the kinds of externals and the degree to which the externals are needed. As I said, you know, as we were saying earlier, a, a, a life of slavery would not count as a eudaimonic life for an Aristotelian. I, I can hardly imagine that to be the case. Uh, well, on the other hand, it would count under certain conditions, depending on what the agent does. Uh, for a for a uh, for a, uh, a stoic. Not only that, one can go the other way around and say that you know most people would say that, that, that if you are wealthy and successful and well regarded, you actually are flourishing. But the stoics would would say yes, but if you're not using your reputation, your wealth, and all that sort of stuff in the proper manner, or if you achieve those, that that stage uh, in an improper manner, in an unvirtuous manner, then actually it doesn't matter that you're virtuous and well-regarded and all that, I'm sorry, that you're well-regarded, wealthy and all that sort of stuff, you're actually still a failure as a human being, right? So that's a major difference. Um, and I think, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to press to the point to which we're, we're arguing minutia, um, but, but I do think, I do <laughs> we're philosophers, <laughs> but I'm really starting to wonder now whether the difference between the Epicurean and the, between the Stoic and the Aristotelian really isn't categorical, but matters of degree. Um, because let's take the example of a life of slavery, right? Yeah. Or a life imprisonment or whatever, right? It seems to me that one can only flourish as a Stoic within that environment if one has at least prior to that been in some positive relationships, right? In other words, um, yeah. Let me give yeah, you an example. Right. So, so I, my my thoughts might here might be a little bit scattered, but I think the picture is pretty clear, right? So, so one of the one of the remarkable things about Primo Levi's survival in Auschwitz, yeah, is the accounts of just how terribly the Jews acted towards each other, right? Um, right. That that there, there was sort of you know a point of dehumanization past which they even were willing to violate bonds of kinship and, and family and all sorts of stuff, prey upon each other, murder each other, steal food from each other, rape each other, etc. Um, and that's with the fact that people, that these people had pri previously existed in positive, positive social environments, right? Um, right. 
if someone has never been in a positive social environment, then imprisonment and slavery is going to turn them into an animal. It's not going to turn them into it. They're not going to become uh, uh, James Stockdale. Right. Um, um, and so it sounds to me like um, the, the, the point about preferred indifference and autonomy and control needs to be taken um, in a broad rather than in a, in, in, in a, in a, I'm sorry, in a, in a, uh, an impressionistic rather than a literal way, right? Because in order to develop and be able to exercise a good character, one has to have had successful social relationships. And whether or not you've had successful relationships is not entirely in your control. That does depend on other people. Yeah, and it does depend on circumstances, right? It's right. simply that for the Stoics, they have a much more minimalistic conception of how much of this is required. Yep. And the Aristotelians have a much fatter conception of how much of this is required. Do you think that's a fair characterization? I think that's fair. And in fact, um, one of the uh, – I wrote a post for, uh, for how to be a Stoic.org, uh, one of my blogs, some time ago, that actually put this uh, – the difference between Aristotelian Stoics and Cynics along the continuum. Yeah, the Cynics are just on the farthest end of the spectrum. Correct. Exactly. But the better way, I think, to understand the Stoic position is precisely to, to, to uh, look at this Aristotelians at one end of the spectrum and the Cynics at the other end of the spectrum. So let's, you know, let's talk for a minute about the Cynics. So the Cynics, who, by the way, preceded the Stoics by you know, a few decades, the, the Cynic philosophy started out a little earlier than the Stoics. Um, and it, it, this is significant because I, I think that the Stoics did a, a, uh, made an interesting move that I'm going to uh, argue for in a, in a minute. But if you, talk, if you, if you look, look at the cynics, the cynics, in a sense, were a reaction to the Aristotelians. Uh, they were trying to get back to a more Socratic uh, approach to uh, philosophy. And so they went all the way. In fact, um, what is it? Um, somebody uh, referred to the cynics as Socrates. Uh, to, oh, yeah. Uh, I think it was Plato. They referred to Diogenes of Sinope, one of the cynics, uh, as Socrates gone mad. <laughs> so it was an like extreme version of Socratic philosophy. Yeah. Was extreme about it. The, the cynic said, not only externals are not necessary for uh, eudaimonia, for, for, for a life worth living, they actually get in the way of it. Right? So that's They're almost anarchists. They're almost an analogous to a modern day anarchist. Yeah. Yeah. They were anarchists and minimalists, right? So they typically didn't marry, didn't have children, did not have a house, did not own property, you know, that sort of stuff, right? Um, so if you, now if you put that as, at one extreme, so we have a situation where the only thing that you need in order to have a worthwhile life, a eudaimonic life, is virtue. That's it. Anything else, not only it's not necessary, but in fact gets in the way. At the opposite extreme, you have the Aristotelian position, which is much more commonsensical. It's like, no, my friend, uh, not only you need, yes, you do need virtue. You want to be a virtuous person. You want to be a good person. But on top of that, you need, you know, a little bit of education, a little bit of wealth, or, you know, even good looks, Aristotle at one point says, uh, are actually going to be useful. And you need to try to function in the society, right? I mean, you need to sort of, you know. Yes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now, the Stoics came later, um, and I think, I don't know how conscious this move was, but it certainly was an interesting move in, in, in conceptual space. Basically, the Stoic position is intermediate between those two. They said, look, uh, yes, it is true that uh, you need it, it, that the life is better with certain externals, 
They are called preferred indifference. And yes, it is true that actually too much of that or a careless use of those can actually get in the way. So the cynics do have a point. But, you know, normal human life requires two things. It requires, a, you know, the foundational part is you want to be a good member of the polis. So you want to be virtuous. But on top of that, if you can, without compromising that more fundamental aspect, uh, get uh, uh, access to externals and use them properly, by all means, go ahead and do it. So the Stoics really position themselves kind of in between the two. And if that's true, then, of course, exactly where you are in between is a matter of degree. And in fact, I've argued in that same post that hopefully we'll, we'll link from the, from the podcast episode, um, I've argued that with, even within Stoicism there were differences. I was going to ask if the different Stoics are to one side or the other of the more in the Aristotelian direction or more in the, the Cynic direction. Yes, absolutely. So I, I, my guess would be, for instance, that Seneca is closer to... Aristotelian. Theory. And yes. Epictetus is and more like a Cynic. Right. Epictetus, and what about, the original, no. what about the original Greek Stoics? Were they, were they closer to Cynics or closer to... Or did they also display a... a uh, there were also differences. Yeah, there were also differences there, although I think uh, less marked than differences between the, the Roman Stoics. But I think there is a good sociological and historical reason for that. So the early Stoics were closer to the Cynics. Uh, let's not forget that Stoicism was established by Zeno of Sidium, who was a... Um, uh, who, he, he actually... He was a Cynic, wasn't he? Yeah, initially yeah. he was a Cynic. Right? Yeah. So his, his first um, teacher was, was a Cynic. And um, so... So that's important to keep in mind. So the original, the early Stoics were clearly closer to the, to the cynics. But, he, but Zeno abandoned cynicism. Um, and I think he, he more or less consciously abandoned it for this reason. That he saw some, uh, some good in the Aristotelian position uh, or even in the, in the skeptic, platonic skeptic, skeptic position. Um, the reason the, the, we find more variety, I think, among the later Stoics, which are the Roman imperial Stoics, as opposed to the Greek ones, is, I think, just because the social, political situation was different. Um, you know, the Roman Empire was a, was a, a place where there was huge inequality uh, of wealth and education and so on and so forth. And the Stoics themselves were very, very different in their personal lives, right? So you have Seneca, who was the second most powerful man in the empire under Nero, uh, and they have Epictetus that started out his life as a slave. I mean, that's really pretty much the gamut. Uh, or, 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 even or Marcus, who was an emperor. <laughs> who was actually an emperor, right? So <laughs> you have the whole gamut from, from slave to emperor, and I think that actually does, uh, uh, obviously has effects on, on, on sort of, the, uh, of the, the broad range of stoic positions uh, in the late store. But the fundamental point you were making there earlier, I think, is correct. That is, there is a continuum between Aristotelianism on one end, cynicism at the other end, and Stoicism somewhere in between. Yeah. And even within Stoicism, there is a continuum. Uh, some Stoics leaning more toward the cynics and others more toward the Aristotelians. I just wonder whether some of the formulations that you said that are so commonly you get out of, some of the formulas that you so often get out of Stoicism give somewhat of a misimpression, right? I mean, the dichotomy of control really is only true for Stoicism uh, impressionistically, not literally, right? There are things that are out of your control that are necessary, right? 
in order to be able to flourish. If you are profoundly mentally retarded, which is out of your control, you cannot flourish. If you've never, ever had a positive relationship, which is not entirely in your control, you're probably not going to flourish, right? I mean, so, and the same thing with the preferred, I mean, the preferred indifference is obviously related, right? It seems to me like I almost wonder whether some of the formulas are a little unfortunate because they give almost the impression that Stoics are like cynics, right? Yeah. Um, and they're really not. They're really much more, it seems to me, just much like more Spartan Aristotelians is what they are. They That's just think you can do with up. a lot less, right? They think you can yeah. do with a lot less um, and, and, that, and that you don't have to get along that well, right? And you don't have to sort of, you know what I mean? It, it's, it, yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're right. In fact, it's interesting you brought up uh, Sparta because several of the Stoics were admirers of the Spartans more than the Athenians. Uh, actually, Aristotle that, was, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, and Book Ten he actually speaks pretty admiring of the of the Spartans towards the end when he's transitioning to the politics. Uh, he talks pretty admiringly about the, about the Spartans. Um, yeah, but, right. So the, what I do find so there's a couple of things. Do you think the formulas are unfortunate, or do you think that's just unavoidable whenever you try to popularize or otherwise communicate a philosophy? I think to some extent that's unavoidable, and also. You know what? At some at, at at this point, there is a long history of like you know more than two millennia. So some formulas are gonna are gonna stay just because they they were there from the beginning. And what is up to us now is to sort of to explain to use that as a as a conversation piece, as as, as they say. Right. So you know, whenever I do like when when people ask me about socialism, I do like to say, so what is socialism about? It's it's about living according to nature. Oh, what do you mean? Well, let me explain. Right. Right. Can you actually use that to your advantage? You can say, okay. You can use a formula, a formula that is, in fact, prone to misunderstanding. And then you say, but here, here's what I mean. And so you move from the bumper sticker version of the philosophy to at least a little bit of a conversation. Yeah. Uh, but, but I do want to make a point or two about, about that observation. Um, so first of all, uh, I have uh, written another, uh, another post on my blog uh, about the fact that stoicism in particular, but in general, any philosophy, um, is a philosophy of life. It's not a magic wand. It's not, you know, it, it, people sometimes... It's not, a, it's not a manual. It's not an instruction manual. Yeah. It's not an instruction yeah. manual. It also does take for granted certain a certain number of things. If you are, as we were saying earlier, if you're, uh, let's say, seriously depressed, right? I mean, clinically depressed, and you're, you're contemplating suicide and all that sort of stuff. And I'm sorry, stoicism isn't the cure you need a psychiatrist or you need a psychologist. Now, once a psychiatrist or the psychologist has improved your situation to the point where you regain a certain agency, right, a certain healthy agency, then you go back to the philosophy because presumably your everyday problems like, you know, profession, love, friendship, and all that, they're still there. The pill isn't going to solve it. The psychologist isn't going to solve those problems. Uh, they're just going to bring you back down to a, to a level in which you can think. So I think that every philosophy, not just Stoicism, assumes a reasonably normal degree of agency. You know, human being, human agency, probably like every other uh, human trait, falls into a bell curve. And if you are too far, you know, let's say more than two standard deviations from the, from the mean, you're screwed. And there is nothing a philosophy can do for you at that point. Then you're at the level of quasi medical intervention, right? I mean, I mean, Correct. Um, Correct. and that that fits in. I mean, I know that you used to do philosophical counseling as a, a professionally, and 
I think maybe a lot of people didn't understand that about that. You know what I mean? A lot of the criticisms of that, I think, and, and I don't know how much the practitioners might misunderstand it or some of them, but it seems to me what you're saying is really important. Um, and also the segue, you know, more broadly, so we're, we, you, me, and Sky Cleary are hopefully going to be publishing a book on philosophies of life if, if, right. if, if, if the, uh, if the preferred indifference work out well. And, right. um, and, um, one of the things that, you know, I wondered about, and I was going to ask you about, since you've been, you've been you're sort of leading the way in this area, um, is there, in a sense, a limit to the extent to which philosophy can be, can be popularized, right? In other words, do you reach a point at which it joins the self-help literature and then starts to be perceived as manuals of inst- instructions, and, in a sense... Is in a sense then becomes something that's really not a good thing, right? In other words, do we have to be very careful yeah. to not wind up with the Tony Robbins and the sort of the the sort of? Yeah. Do you th- have you thought about this at all as you've been foraying yeah. more and more into this area? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, and in fact, that same essay in which I write about um, you know philosophy not being a magic wand that if you if you if you are, if you have serious issues. In terms of efficiency of agency, you need to look for a you know professional medical help. In that same essay, also saying that philosophy is not a, a, a prosperity gospel either. It is not meant to be you know sort of a simple self help book and you know here's seven rules to achieve success that sort of stuff. Right. One of the things that do concern me about the popularity of stoicism now is precisely that that inevitably. Uh, there is a, 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 a continuum there because it's not, I, I don't think there is a sharp distinction there. Uh, there are authors who have written good books about stoicism that tend to go toward the self-help-ish kind of uh, uh, direction. And then there are some that are clearly, obviously, self-help, and they even sort of misunderstand the philosophy. I mean, if you if you write book, a book about you know how to be a successful in Wall Street by using stoicism, you're missing the entire point of stoicism. Because well, the, and the reason I ask this is because this has been done yep. to Buddhist meditation. Yes, that's right. They've cor- this has now turned into a corporate fad. And you'll have in, you know, the same corporation that, I don't know, you know, sent a poison cloud over a village in India or something. You've got the execs sitting on yoga mats, right? That's right. And, 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 so, and so, you know, are you, so you're telling me that you are seeing, and I'm no, no names, obviously. No. Are, you starting to see, are you starting to see some worrisome signs that philosophy oh, yeah. is popularizing, it, popularizing in this direction? Oh, yeah. Uh, there are definitely signs. In fact, if you want names, I'm not going to name it, but if you want names, go check that article. <laughs> I do have links to a couple of examples just to make sure, you know, make clear that I'm not making this thing up. Um, no, you're right. In fact, the example of the Buddhist, uh, Buddhism is interesting. Um, there's a friend of mine who is, uh, who is both a Stoic practitioner and a Buddhist practitioner, and, and he tells me, you know, the majority of Buddhists, you know, people that, pra- that practice meditation are not actually Buddhists. They don't follow Buddhist philosophy right. at all. They did. They wouldn't do the kind of things you just, you just mentioned. But frankly, that is actually a general problem, I think, of uh, both philosophies of life and uh, religions, right? I mean, uh, take Christianity, for instance. I mean, I use the word, the, the phrase, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, prosperity gospel. Mm. That is, it, that's a thing in, in modern yeah, Christianity. No, you're absolutely right. Especially in the United States. You're and absolutely right. 
know, I grew up Catholic. If there is anything that goes against Christianity, it's precisely the idea of a prosperity gospel. That just makes no sense whatsoever from an actual Christian perspective. Just in the same way in which writing a book on how to be a successful uh, Wall Streeter using Stoicism completely misunderstands Stoicism because external success is by definition and most of preferred in their friend, and in fact, it can be a dispreferred one if you do it in the wrong way, if you do it unvirtuously. The same goes for Buddhism. I mean, you know, Buddhism had, it talks about right action, right, right, right thinking, you know, right intentions. And a lot of these people that think that they're doing meditations in a sort of Buddhist fashion are, are not engaging in right action, right thinking, and so on to put. So, um, so I think that's a general problem. Uh, and what do we need to do? What do, the people who are trying to popularize this the right way, like you? Well, I think we need, need to, to do. Uh, I think we need to be to do two things. Uh, one, of course, be careful in our own writings of you know not crossing that that line in the sand. And I agree that it is a line in the sand. It's a continuum. I don't think there's a sharp dividing line there. But you know, like the famous uh, American judge once uh, wrote, you know, I can't define pornography, but I see it when I see it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I look at some of these books, again, Christian, Buddhist, or Stoic uh, books, and I think I can tell whether somebody's gone across that line or not. So the first thing to do is, in fact, for ourselves, when we write and when we talk and we give talks um, and, and advise other people to be very careful to stay as far as possible on this side of that line. The other thing, uh, as unpleasant as it may be, is in fact that we should not be afraid of, uh, of speaking out uh, and criticizing people who do cross that line, especially the most egregious examples. So, you know, you can, you can pick an, an example. I mean, I, I really think if you're a good uh, Christian, you should, you ought, morally ought to criticize somebody who engages in, in, in prosperity gospels, somebody who's going to sell you, you know, the gospels for thousands of dollars of contribution. I think that, that it's an unchristian thing to do. And if I were a devout Christian, a serious Christian, I would speak out against it because right. it seems a betrayal of my own religion, right? Um, in a sense, exercise in public what in the academic world is a kind of peer review, right? I mean, yes. I mean, Right. You know, in the academic world, if you if you present something that that people take issue with, they're they're going to go after it, right? And and you're saying, in a sense, we need to do the same um, 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 in the in the popular uh, press, so to speak. And I, I completely understand that this is an unpleasant task, and also is a task that can be construed from the other side as you know, policing the borders and you know, uh, pushing your own version of things. Yeah, there is a risk of that as well, right? I mean. That there is a risk of sort of um, squaring, you know, putting your, your wagons around a particular circle and excluding certain people, et cetera, et cetera. Look, ultimately, of course, it is up to the people who actually read these things, to, to, to the listeners and viewers of these podcasts, uh, you know, to make up their minds. I mean, I can't, we, you and I cannot do it for them. Of course. But I think there is a place for an honest criticism um, of positions that you see honestly, as a misunderstanding or a misappropriation of certain ideas. I mean, that's pretty fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Massimo, uh, this was fantastic. I really missed you, man. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, we'll again soon. <laughs> I mean, I love the ones I've been doing, but it's, there's something special about this. I really enjoy it. And um, uh, I look forward to working with you again soon. And um, um, you'll please send me links to a lot of the things you talked about, especially some of these posts that you've done. Um, on your on your stoic blog, and we'll make sure they go up in the link section. 
and uh, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, we'll go from there. Thank you, you, Massimo. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.